Well, good evening and w welcome uh, on behalf of the trustees of the Hamlin Trust to the third and final one in this year's series of Hamlin Lectures. Uh, Emma Hamlin, who died in 1941 in Torquay, uh, left a small fund uh, in memory of her father, who was a solicitor of the JP, and very fittingly, um, litigation immediately followed, uh, with the result that it wasn't until 1948 that the Chancery Division held that the terms of the trust just about passed muster uh, and was certain enough to produce a series of lectures. Uh, the first lecture was given in 1949 by Lord Denning, and uh, following him, such um, great names as Devlin, Kahnfreund, Hailsham, Wolfe, Twining, Zander, Hale, Mackay of Clashfern, Geerty, if I may say so, um, all have followed um, <coughs> in the lead up to um, Nicola Lacey's lecture tonight. Um, the trust is supported uh, now by Cambridge University Press, its publishers, and we're exceed exceedingly grateful for that support. Uh, next year's lecture, lecturer will be Dame Hazel again, the year after 2009, Lord Bingham. Uh, Nicola Lacey um, is, as you will know, Professor of Criminal Law and Legal Theory uh, in this school, uh, was previously Professor of Law at Birkbeck College, and has since 2001 been a Fellow of the British Association. Uh, she writes uh, extensively on crime and punishment and on women and the law, and has also um, been the author of the prize-winning biography of Herbert Hart, The Nightmare and the Noble Dream, uh, an unusual and very uh, distinguished um, departure for um, uh, 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 an academic. Uh, tonight completes the 2007 series. The first two were um, given in Leeds and Liverpool, uh, the uh, overall topic being The Prisoner's Dilemma, uh, the paper that um, Nicola Lacey gave at Leeds was on penal populism in contemporary democracies. Uh, that in Liverpool uh, was entitled Explaining Penal Tolerance and Severity. Anybody who has come tonight in the belief that the title of the lecture is Escaping the Prisoner's Dilemma uh, had better leave now. Uh, it is in fact Escaping the Prisoner's Dilemma and I call upon Professor Lacey to deliver it. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, I'd just like to start by saying, uh, well, really stating the obvious, I feel just tremendously honoured to have been selected by the trustees as this year's Hamlin lecturers following in such an intimidatingly uh, distinguished cast. Um, and in particular, I would like to thank Kim Econobides, the chair of the trustees, and particularly Stephen for chairing tonight, and Claire Dyer, who have been the trustees most uh, immediately involved in the preparations for this series. So uh, it's really lovely to have had their help in getting to, to this point this evening. Could I also just add my word of thanks to Stephen's to uh, Cambridge University Press, uh, three Cambridge colleagues are here tonight and in particular could I make honourable mention of Fanola O'Sullivan who has the unique distinction of having attended all three lectures and I really, really appreciated that. She was also fabulous company on the road. Um, I'm also of course delighted to be back in my own department. I saved the uh, pleasure of a home match till last, although I must say I was extraordinarily warmly welcomed in both Leeds and Liverpool. But it is particularly lovely to be here tonight because, as it happens, this lecture is drawing on the work of many LSE colleagues from several departments, and that sort of cross-disciplinary aspect of LSE is one of the many reasons why I'm always so glad to be here. Now, since I'm at home, I'm also going to just introduce... Um, a little bit, just say a word about the motivation between, uh, behind this, this series of lectures. I want to say two things about that. One is a sort of personal thing, and the other is really a political thing. The personal thing that I want to uh, say is that um, really this whole project has been inspired by conversations and intellectual companionship over many years with my husband, David Soskis. 
Um, sadly, he's no longer an LSE colleague. He's been poached by Oxford. Um, but uh, although it's not the uh, main subject of the lecture tonight, it was really the main subject of the second lecture, in fact, uh, his work on comparative political economy forms the theoretical backbone of this whole project. So and it's lovely that he's here. Um, the, the second thing, the political thing, is this. Now, uh, really, the motivation behind these lectures was an attempt to get to grips intellectually with a kind of disappointment. And I'm sure it's a disappointment that is shared by other people in this room. And it's this. How could it be that a government whom I voted for and support and generally believe to be in good faith have come up with such, to my mind, illiberal criminal justice policies? Um, this has generated a, a regular kind of breakfast time conversation in our household, which goes something like this. Nikki, looking at The Guardian, I cannot believe they've done this. I'm going to have to resign from the Labour Party. David, darling, you can't do that. You've already done it. <laughs> now, over the years, I've got bored hearing myself do, doing this sort of disgusted of the LSE liberal kind of reaction, and I've become more and more intrigued by, as it were, the explanatory question, why was it that this government, which I genuinely think came in with good intentions, liberal intentions in criminal justice, has been driven in a, an increasingly harsh direction. So that's really the sort of overall motivation behind this project. Uh, now, you are, I'm afraid, in an unenviable position because you're the audience for the last lecture. And so I'm just going to start with a very, very brief recap of the story so far, the, the case for which, of course, I'll have to ask all of you except for NOLA to take on trust. My previous lectures put forward two main claims. First, I showed that notwithstanding diagnoses of a global drift towards penal severity, there are in fact striking differences in levels of punishment in contemporary democracies. Second, I argued that recent literature on the varying political economic structure of societies could help us to understand the genesis of these differences. Penal policy and practice are nested in a broader institutional and cultural environment. As political scientists Peter Hall and David Soskis have shown, there are systematic institutional differences between two broad varieties of capitalism. And these, I argued, illuminate patterns of penal severity across developed countries. Relatively uncoordinated, individualistic, liberal market economies, such as the United States and this country, are vulnerable to the hold of penal populism. But the coordinated market economies of Northern Europe and Scandinavia, with their proportionately representative political systems and economies foc focusing on long-term investment in specialist skills, are better placed to resist pressures for penal expansion, not least because these institutional factors help to sustain lower social inequality and higher levels of social trust and informal social control. The structure of democracies, in short, affects their capacity to balance the normative demand of responsiveness in criminal justice with that of inclusion. The differences which I've established and their relationship to political economy are summarized in this diagram. At the moment, I just want to draw your attention to the first two columns and the last column. Um, the first two columns give you the imprisonment rate per 100,000 for a number of countries, and I've drawn these figures from the very useful work of Cavadino and Dignan's recent book, Penal Systems, A Comparative Approach. You'll see that America is, as it were, at the top of the league, but it's not really a league I think anyone would particularly want to come top of. Um, if you look at the last uh, um, column for a moment, you'll see it's called coordination index rating. This is according to a scale developed by Peter Hall and Daniel Gingrich. And you will see that the countries that come 
in Hall and Soskis's terms within the category liberal market economies have considerably lower capacities to coordinate their policy making across political, social welfare and economic spheres than those in the middle or lower um, groups which are coordinated market economies. Now, this evening, I'm going to focus on two questions which are central to the upshot of this analysis for the future of punishment in advanced democracies. First, in the light of worrying recent rises in the level of punishment in some of the moderate countries, most spectacularly in the Netherlands, are we now witnessing a general trend towards ever more penal populism? Does globalisation mean that coordinated market economies will opt for the strategy of governing through crime? Or are rising levels of punishment just part of a short-term adaptation, one which will leave in place the differences between families of political economy? Second, what can this analysis tell us about the capacity of liberal market systems to reverse the trend to penal severity? Are we in countries like this caught in a genuine prisoner's dilemma in which it's in everyone's interest to resist the social costs of the mass imprisonment now seen in America and yet in which a collective action problem traps us in a decision-making structure which produces outcomes for which most of us would choose to avoid? Or are there strategies for escaping this dilemma or at least weakening its hold? Several influential analyses of punishment in late modern societies argue or assume that the American model of mass imprisonment spells, in substance if not in scale, the future for other countries. Now, it's of course some comfort that, notwithstanding recent rises in imprisonment rates in Europe, the American figures stand out as so quantitatively, quantitatively different as to make incarceration look to be a qualitatively different social phenomenon in the States than in the rest of the world. Just have a look at a couple of figures. This one gives you the imprisonment rate per 100,000 of a whole number of countries. Uh, we've got the United States to the right, but the thing to note about this diagram is that we can't even fit the United States onto it. We would have needed to have had the diagram three times as high to get a proper bar for America. And this, well, this chart gives you trends since 1950. And again, you can see that although in the 1950s American levels of imprisonment or rates of imprisonment are at least comparable with those of Europe, from the early 1970s on, they just go into whatever the opposite of a free fall is. In the last lecture, I canvassed a number of arguments which might help to explain the extraordinary intensity of American punishment. Among the relatively uncoordinated, individualistic liberal market economies, the US represents a paradigm of the features which helped to produce the politicization of criminal justice and accordingly high levels of punishment under conditions of relatively high crime and economic and social insecurity. These include a majoritarian political system with low levels of party discipline and a significant pool of floating voters, low levels of confidence in professional expertise, an uncoordinated labour market encompassing a high proportion of insecure or part-time jobs with weak central organisation of education and training and a relatively ungenerous welfare state. In the light of these institutional features, the American response to the collapse of Fordist production and the financial crisis of the early 1970s was to reduce the welfare state and move in a neoliberal direction, thereby producing a sizable underclass of those excluded from effective membership of the polity and economy. Teamed with factors such as low levels of social trust and weak structures of informal social control, these might themselves be a recipe for especially high levels of punishment. 
To this picture, we must add three further factors. The first, and unfortunately the most important, is race. In the wake of high levels of social conflict in the era of the civil rights movement, the criminal process has been invoked as a method of disciplining Afri African Americans, with the level of incarceration of young black men in particular extraordinarily high. The 800,000 black men in American prisons at the turn of the century amounted to 4.6% of the total male black population and to 11.3% of those between the ages of 20 and 34. Already in 1994, one in every three black men between the ages of 18 and 34 was under some form of correctional supervision. Now, the explosion of American imprisonment has affected whites as well as blacks. The rate of white imprisonment doubled over the period from 1970 to 2004. But it remains less than one-seventh the rate of black imprisonment. And it's the intensity of the criminalization of young black men which gives the U.S. figures their unique scale. And here's a chart that gives you a sense of that. The intensity of this punishment of black Americans has led to consequences so devastating at every level of civil society that Bruce Weston, the leading scholar in this field, finds it appropriate to speak of a retrenchment of African American citizenship. Just a few salient facts give a scale of this broader picture. About 10% of recent cohorts of white male, but 60% of black male high school dropouts will go to prison at some time in their lives. More than half the children with imprisoned parents have been estimated to be black. Almost one in ten black children have a parent in prison. While issues of racial disparity trouble most penal systems, the scale of American disparities is unique. The retrenchment of African-American citizenship is reinforced, of course, by the widespread practice of felon disenfranchisement, which excludes a disproportionate number of black Americans from political participation. And this chart you have in front of you at the moment, prepared by Bruce Weston, gives you a sense of the relationship between um, criminalization and education levels, but also disaggregated by race. And I think you'll see that they're very striking, particularly for younger black men. So race is the first factor. Second, and interacting with race, U.S. policy has featured a particularly intense war on drugs. Over the last 40 years, the ratcheting up of drug criminalization has had a decisive impact on levels of punishment, with a particular impact, once again, on young black men. Third, sentencing reform has been a significant factor. The collapse of faith in the rehabilitative ideal, strongly associated, of course, with Barbara Wooden's Hamlin lectures of 1963, issued in uniquely rigid determinate sentencing legislation at both federal and state levels. This consolidated the politicization of punishment, undermined the autonomy and status of the judiciary, and increased the power of prosecutors. These factors go some way to explaining the depressing story of American mass imprisonment and give some hope that it is not inevitably the story of other countries. Recently, however, several commentators have argued that there is reason to think that the American way of punishment is travelling across national boundaries, with the implication that David Garland's dystopian culture of control may indeed be an apposite diagnosis of punishment in late modernity. And social democratic criminology, as Robert Reiner has put it, something which we can only remember and lament. Their arguments rest on two main planks. First, political economy. Second, 
the analogies between the functions of punishment in relation to African Americans and its emerging functions in relation to migrants in Europe. I'll consider each of these in turn. The political economy argument asserts that pressures towards a flexible economy with a large underclass of unnecessary labour which is warehoused in the penal system are now being felt with increasing force in other countries as the deregulation of international trade and the movement of goods, services and workers across national boundaries proceeds apace. In a globalised world of rapidly moving markets and high mobility, so the argument goes, it will be in every country's interest to have a flexible economy which can react rapidly to changing external conditions. This entails having a substantial group of insecurely employed or unemployed workers. The fiscal implications of the resulting dependence of these people on welfare benefits in turn conduces to a shift towards less generous welfare provision. This is reminiscent of Ralph Darendorf's brutal analysis in his Hamlin Lectures of 1985. He said, as a matter of fact, the majority class does not need the unemployed to maintain and even increase its standard of living. Under these conditions, political support and economic incentives for extensive punishment appear to be distressingly robust. There's a further dimension to the political economy argument which is important here. This has to do with the conditions which have produced political support for a flexible economy, the dilution of employment protections and the downgrading of welfare. The key issue here is the way in which a particular understanding of economic success has become salient in national politics. The image of the United States as the world's paradigm of a successful market economy has turned on its capacity to sustain low low unemployment, relatively low inflation and high growth during the last decade of the 20th century a period during which many European countries experienced relatively low growth and high unemployment. The fact that this country, with its liberal market institutions, was an exception to the European norm at that time, has fed into an intense debate about the need to reform the European social model. The political ramifications were seen in the run-up to the German election of 2005, and in the outcome of this year's French presidential election. These dynamics, it's argued, conduce towards a dilution of traditional European welfare and labour market policies and towards a transatlantic model of liberalisation and deregulation. Of particular relevance here is the emergence of increasingly dualised labour markets with a marked increase in less secure jobs and with knock-on effects, of course, for welfare entitlements and hence for social and economic inclusion. These are symptoms on what we might call the globalisation as convergence view of the first cracks in the wall of the European social model, forerunners of an intensification of exclusionary social control across the continent. But does the U.S. deserve its reputation as the exemplary post-Fordist economic success? Both sociologists and economists have argued that mass imprisonment in the USA has made a substantial contribution to its image as a successful economy. By removing a substantial proportion of the underclass from the national calculations of employment, Incarceration has a non-trivial impact in reducing unemployment figures. It's been estimated, for example, that the inclusion of those in prison would double the unemployment rate of African Americans from 8% to 16%. The removal of prisoners from the role of the unemployed therefore distorts the perception of American economic performance. What's more, the employment created by the prison system, building construction, maintenance, security technology, supervision, 
now constitutes a sizable proportion of the US economy. In some fascinating recent work, economists Samuel Bowles and Aryan Yadev have assessed the proportion of the labor force involved in what they call guard labor. Work, in other words, which involves the monitoring and supervision of property, people, labor, or the enforcement of contracts. They include here the police, private security guards, military personnel, prison officers, and others who, as they put it, form the disciplinary apparatus of a society. They include managers, by the way, but I think not academics yet. According to their figures, roughly one in four in the U.S. economy is engaged in guard labor, a proportion, moreover, which has quadrupled since the 1890s and which is more than double that in Sweden. In an extensive cross-national comparison, they found that high levels of guard labor were strongly associated with high social and economic polarization, with high levels of political conflict, with low political legitimacy, and with low levels of welfare spending. The fact that these differences reach so deeply, not only into the structure of labor markets, but also to this range of other institutions, gives further reason to believe that the American model is not the inevitable shape of things to come. So on the basis of comparative political economy, it's too soon to conclude that the American model is the shape of the future in all affluent democracies. And we must bear in mind that the scale of the existing differences in penal practice between the US and Europe is such that the imprisonment rates of even the most punitive here in Europe look much more like each other than they look like the US. Simple arithmetic shows that even if medium-term adjustments to international competition are currently producing significant interest, uh, increases in the prison populations in Europe and Scandinavia, rises similar in proportionate terms to those seen in the US would still leave huge differences in scale between levels of, of punishment. Here is a chart which gives you a projection based on the story just of the last few years as to how things might look in 2020. And you see that really the differences are still, they're actually increasing rather than decreasing. I should say that these charts, I'm not very techy myself, as my colleagues know, and these charts have been uh, prepared by a wonderful graduate student from the European Institute who's done a great job. Now, actually, if you look at this chart um, closely, you'll see that actually only the Netherlands has proportionate increases approaching those of the U.S., but even so, the increases have only taken it to the level, a level so far below the level of the one European liberal market economy, in other words, this country. My point here really is that if the collapse of Fordism was the primary explanation of mass imprisonment, we would have expected to see much larger rises in the European prison populations at a much, much earlier date. So, so far I've been arguing that as long as systematic differences in political economy persist, the structure of both institutional capacity and hence the comparative advantage of different countries will continue to differ. Even if we allow that there is some global pressure to reduce the costs of welfare spending and increase labor market flexibility, this still spells some hopeful news. But I now need to address a more specific argument about the dynamic towards greater penal severity in Europe. This draws attention not just to recent e increases in the prison population, but also to the proportion of foreign nationals included in these figures. All European countries possess in prison a proportion of foreign nationals higher than their representation in the population. But while this country has retained a relatively low proportion of foreign nationals in prison, the traditionally more homogeneous societies of the continent 
exhibit significant and rising proportions, with most of the Scandinavian countries too having proportions significantly those above of England and Wales. And here is a chart. Um, my research assistant has a wider vocabulary than I do. I had to look up on the internet that alloctonous meant, well actually I found three different meanings, but I think you'll get the sense of this chart. The blue bars are non-foreign nationals. Um, the bars, the yellow bars at the bottom are the proportion of foreign nationals in the population as a whole. And the orange bar added to the yellow bar gives you the number, the proportion in prison. So you can see that in, in every country here apart from Finland, they are uh, quite seriously overrepresented. <clears throat> now, probably the most startling example here, sadly, is the Netherlands. Traditionally, as we know from David Downs's work, one of the most tolerant as well as one of the most ethnically diverse countries of Europe, the Netherlands quintupled its prison population between 1975 and 2002. Recent work by David Downs and René van Svanigen shows that no fewer than 50% of the prison population were born outside the country. The Dutch rates of foreign national imprisonment for 2006 are almost three times higher than those prevailing here. The impact of popular perceptions about immigration on both feelings of insecurity and diminishing trust in government appear to have played a central role in producing this symptom of the collapse of the Dutch multicultural ideal. The scale of foreign nationals' imprisonment across Europe is so striking that it's recently become the object of an inquiry funded by the EU. This revealed that there are over 100,000 foreign prisoners in Europe. Numbers vary markedly between countries, from a low in Slovakia of 2.4% of the prison population to a high in Luxembourg of a staggering 714 now, the bare figures, of course, don't tell us the proportion of foreign nationals in the population as a whole, and that data, unfortunately, is only unevenly available. But Dario Malossi did do uh, uh, such a comparison in 2000, and his results confirm the scale of the differences across Europe. The ratio of overrepresentation of foreign nationals relative to their presence in the population ranged from a low in Lossi's research of 3.2 in this country to a high of 14.1 in Italy, with the Netherlands standing at 10.4. And of course, these figures don't give even a full sense of the imprisonment rates for people seen as outsiders. For by definition, they exclude migrants who have nationality, and they sometimes also exclude substantial numbers in purportedly non-penal institutions like detention centres. Now, in my last lecture, I suggested that the integration of outsiders might be the Achilles heel of the coordinated market economies. Systems which make significant investments in their members through training, education or welfare support so as to sustain a high skills economy may in other words be good places to be insiders but hard places to enter from the outside. That outsider might be a literal outsider like a would-be migrant or an internal outsider, like someone who aspires to mobility within the system. Women in the German labour market would be a good example there. It's the, in the interests of coordinated, high unit cost economies to incorporate insiders. But newcomers pose more of a challenge, perhaps, than they do in a more flexible economy like ours. This speculative hypothesis is confirmed by the recent finding that one of the main forms of discrimination against foreign nationals in European criminal justice systems is their exclusion from the reintegrative institutions which have been a key characteristic of the penal systems of many of the coordinated market economies. 
It would be depressing to think that these tolerant, though many of them until recently relatively homogeneous societies, may be pushed in a less tolerant direction by diversity. Neither this possibility nor the lower UK figures on imprisonment of foreign nationals, of course, implies any moral superiority for neoliberal countries in terms of managing outsiders. We add race into the picture, it looks different. Here, the overrepresentation of black people and of young Afro-Caribbean men in particular invites comparison with the US, although it's not quite so high. But have we reached a point in criminal justice where, as Loïc Wacon has put it, foreigners and quasi-foreigners have become the blacks of Europe? It's easy to sympathise in the light of the data with Wacon's answer. Imprisonment of foreigners and immigrants constitutes a litmus test for the degree to which the European Union resists or conforms to the American policy of criminalisation of poverty as a complement to the generalisation of wage instability and insecurity. Like the carceral fate of blacks in America, it gives an indication of the type of society that Europe is in the process of building. According to Alessandro Di Giorgi, this is a test which European countries are failing spectacularly. It's not just that imprisonment is being applied disproportionately to migrants. It's that being a migrant is close to amounting in itself to a presumptive offence. The legality of migrants is increasingly premised on their labour market participation with a number of countries following the lead of Switzerland's policy of terminating residency entitlements soon after the end of an employment contract. Thus, economic migrants who fail to find a secure footing in the labour market find themselves at risk of deportation or detention. In a tragic irony, Georgie suggests, migrant workers at once represent the acme of mobile capitalist enterprise while being, in effect, punished for precisely this. The data on foreign nationals in prison, overrepresented in every single EU country, is certainly a blot on the ostensible civil, civil libertarian credentials of European polities. And at least in some countries, notably the Netherlands, Fears about the sustainability of the established welfare and social structures in the face of migration have fed the popularity of right-wing parties committed to replacing welfare with punishment as the prevailing approach to social marginality. When we combine this with the fact that a perceived association between outsider status and criminality can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, by shaping reporting and enforcement practice, we have a situation which calls for anything but complacency. But as I try to establish more, at more length in the written lecture, a lot more research would really be needed to establish precisely what is happening in social democratic countries like Sweden and Denmark to prompt the recent rise in punishment, let alone to start concluding that it's likely to be sustained. And I'll draw just one example for the purposes of this evening of how that kind of detailed research might shift our interpretation. My example is from Denmark, where there's rather good data available. The headline figure for foreign nationals' overrepresentation in Danish prisons is a worrying 49%. But it's not clear that this can be attributed entirely to discrimination. For the demographic structure of the foreign national population in terms of age, socioeconomic background, income, and presence in urban as opposed to rural areas, would anyway lead one to expect a significant overrepresentation. When Danish researchers corrected the figures just for age and socioeconomic background, the estimate dropped to 8%. So before we embrace the terrifyingly dystopian conclusions of people like the Giorgio or Wacom, 
It's really important to try to disaggregate some of the facts, to trace some of the country differences within Europe, and to set recent developments within a somewhat longer time span. So to sum up this part of the lecture, in the coordinated market economies of Northern Europe and Scandinavia, while the impact of international competition in a post-Fordist world has indeed generated upward pressure on punishment, the extent of this pressure has so far remained modest. And we can go back to that chart to be reminded of that. While a further move towards the dualized labor markets, which are emerging to some extent in both Germany and the Netherlands, would certainly risk further upward pressure, this pressure is mediated through a set of institutions which nonetheless accord these countries real resources which protect them from the prisoner's dilemma now facing the U.S., the message from the U.S. is that the consolidation of a sizable portion of the population who are excluded from effective structures of work, training, and social support spells an expansion of the criminal justice system. While the link between social welfare entitlement and labor market status in the corporatist countries sets up a particular danger here, it really seems unlikely that the generous and costly universal welfare systems of Scandinavia are much better placed to maintain the necessary political support should they have to accommodate large numbers of people who they don't succeed in integrating into the economy. So in confronting the political task of adapting labor market and training systems to meet the current needs of the economy without damaging social solidarity, the coordinated market economies are certainly facing a particular challenge attendant on incre increasing migration. So the incorporation of those without indigenous training is a particular problem in these tightly coordinated insider societies. But if a critical mass can be effectively incorporated into education and training systems, which in these countries in turn lead to stable economic incorporation, unlike in this country, one of the key conditions for penal populism is weakened. This, I think, implies that the startling lack of any criminological analysis of the, education, uh, the impact of education and training is a serious gap in our understanding, and I think you can see that if you just look again at those American figures on race and education. Certainly, the rapid collapse of political support for toleration in the Netherlands presents a cautionary tale for other coordinated market economies. But even the case of the Netherlands is hardly a picture of American mass imprisonment. The capacity for political negotiation and compromise, the influence of a well-organized professional bureaucracy, and a political orientation to bargaining and consensus are the institutional resources on which these countries must build in resisting the pressures towards a radically polarized society characteristic of liberal market economies. There's some hope then that the coordinated market economies of Northern Europe and Scandinavia may be able to resist the development of a culture of control. But what does the future hold for the more individualistic liberal market economies like this one? It would take a social scientist far more skilled and much more optimistic than I am to throw out any recipe for the reversal of mass imprisonment in America. But what about the UK, which, like Australia and New Zealand, shares many of the liberal market economy features of the US, has experienced a rapid rise in punishment in the last 30 years, and yet which continues to have imprisonment rates nearer to the scale of other European countries than to the US. Here, I want to argue that a proper appreciation of the institutional structure underpinning the rise in punishment 
can help us to glimpse the beginnings of a solution and that that solution may not be beyond the grasp of politicians. Let's just return to the analysis of the rise of punishment in liberal market economies. The disappearance of many secure jobs in the unskilled or manufacturing sectors after the collapse of Fordism led to the creation of a large minority of unemployed or insecurely employed people ungenerously protected by welfare. Culturally included through the reach of state education and media technology, the economic exclusion of this group, along with their relative deprivation, fed both rising crime and a heightened demand for punishment among those securely employed. In particular, the support for strong law and order policies among the growing group of floating median voters led to an acute politicisation of criminal justice. In this context, within an adversarial two-party system, it became impossible for even the left of centre, that's Labour by the way, to sustain a welfareist approach to punishment. As David Downs and Rod Morgan have shown, from the 1970s on, law and order became a salient electoral issue. And on Tony Blair's appointment as Shadow Home Secretary, Labour began to abandon its traditional analysis in favour of a tough-on-crime, tough-on-the-causes-of-crime platform. Tim Newburn has demonstrated that the really sharp upswing in imprisonment rates dates from this decisive moment. In his quest to make Labour electable, Blair, like, as John Pratt has nicely put it, the sorcerer's apprentice, created a phenomenon whose dynamics were out of his control. As law and order swept into the flow of party political competition, both sides had little option but to strive to be toughest on crime. Thus the government has put the emphasis firmly on the first part of the equation. And though policies oriented to social inclusion in education, housing, social welfare and the minimum wage have formed an important object of labour policy, it has been assumed that the exclusionary rhetoric of the tough-on-crime side of the equation was consistent with its inclusionary tough-on-the-causes-of-crime side. As Peter Ramsey has argued, the package amounts to a distinctive and, if not entirely attractive, certainly coherent approach to social citizenship one based on the notion of individuals' responsibility not merely to refrain from criminal conduct, but also to avoid alarming others. This is a world in which it has become thinkable for the police to call for indefinite detention of terrorist suspects, and in one in which the emerging national culture of human rights, analysed by Andrew Ashworth, Stephen Sedley, Connor Geerty in recent Hamlin lectures, and so ably defended in practice by Shami Chakrabarti and her colleagues at Liberty, is being stifled less than a decade after its birth. The size and the demographic structure of the prison population, as well as the inexorably rising rate of imprisonment, even in a world of declining crime, suggests that the exclusionary effects of the tough-on-crime part of the policy have undermined the tough on the causes of crime aspiration. But how are politicians to escape this stalemate when they're terrified of sustaining electoral defeats by failing adequately to reassure the floating voter of their determination to promote security by tackling crime? The social and economic costs of an ever-increasing penal establishment seem to have disappeared from the landscape of political debate and among them, with, along with them, any reasoned discussion of the real contribution of punishment to reducing crime. The structure of this political prisoner's dilemma is not peculiar to Britain. It's a risk for all majoritarian political systems. The relative lack of insulation from popular electoral discipline 
where faith in an independent professional bureaucracy is low adds to the problem. And there's a sense, I think, in which this dilemma grips electors as much as politicians. Though voting for what they perceive as their best interest, their individual preferences add up to support for policies whose long-term consequences spell a world which perhaps few, even among the relatively advantaged, would actually choose to vote. Happily, however, there is one major difference between the situation of political parties and the prisoners of game theory's dilemma. This is that they're able to communicate with each other. And this surely is where an escape from the dilemma can be glimpsed. But it will only be possible if the two main parties can reach a framework agreement about the removal of key aspects of criminal policy, like the size of the prison system, from party political debate. This might be done by setting up an independent and widely drawn body, such as a royal commission. In committing themselves to act on the outcome of such a commission, the two parties would begin to distance the issue of crime control from the upward pressure created by electoral competition and reintroduce some consideration for expertise. In other words, the removal of criminal justice policy from party political competition would open up the possibility of the kind of solution to fiscal policy implemented through the Monetary Policy Committee. Significantly, both the bipartisan and the expert orientation of my suggestion here were prefigured in Gordon Brown's creation of cross-party task forces in a number of areas, including security, when he became Prime Minister. Though it has to be said that the recent muzzling of Lord West following his off-message comments about pre-trial detention don't really augur well. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking that the idea of removing aspects of criminal policy from the arena of partisan competition seems impossibly utopian. Why on earth would politicians give up one of their favourite cards in the game of adversarial party politics? In fact, it would be entirely in their interest to do so. Once both parties have adopted a tough-on-crime stance, neither has much to gain from it. Its inevitable result is an environment in which reactive policy development is the order of the day in which the long-term effects and costs of criminal policy are far from the political agenda, and in which the interaction between criminal policy and other aspects of social and economic policy exists all too often only in the rhetoric of joined-up policymaking. Now, this is not to underestimate the challenge which the existing dynamics of law and order pose. I've argued throughout the lectures that these challenges reach deep into political and economic structures. The main keys to reversing the trend towards ever greater inequality, social conflict and criminalisation lie in a bipartisan approach at the political level, but they would also have to lie in interventions in the labour market, education and training. And that challenge won't be adequately met simply by creating a new tier of very low-skilled and low-paid jobs. I think cracking this economic problem will be a tall order in Britain's political economy, whose competitive position has become increasingly dependent on low labour costs and low labour protections. So the political dimension of the prisoner's dilemma may, in short, be easier to escape than its economic counterpart. The struggle for the social contract is won or lost by our ability to build institutions which stem the tide of the anomie. So concluded a former director of the LSE, Ralph Dorendorf, in his Hamlin Lectures 22 years ago. In bringing my own lectures to a close, it seems appropriate to set it in the context of Darendorf's argument. Anticipating many of the developments of the next 20 years, 
Dorendorf advocated a renewed investment in tackling the problem of law and order. He distanced himself from a resort primarily to a toughening of sanctions through policies like the short, sharp shock, remember that one, which he saw as cheap political measures with little bite against the underlying structural problem of a world divided between, as he put it, those who are in, those who are out, and those who are out and not needed. Yet he also insisted on the importance of a clear differentiation between policies oriented to the mitigation of social disadvantage and those geared to holding individuals firmly responsible for criminal conduct. Tough on the social causes of crime, in other words, had to be teamed with the policy holding individuals accountable for crime. With the benefit of hindsight, Darendorf's analysis stands as an intellectual symbol of the Blairite aspiration in criminal justice. The new Labour ideal fits closely with Darendorf's call for law and order in the sense of the rule of law and moderated neoclassical principles of punishment, teamed with social policies oriented to education and inclusion in work. But recent history, I've shown, suggests that it's hard to sustain policies which are tough on the causes of crime with toughness on crime. This is because tough on crime measures like mandatory sentencing laws and antisocial behaviour orders help to legitimise precisely the two-thirds, one-third society which Dorendorf diagnosed as a key problem. So the principle of punishment as proportionate to desert, advocated by Dorendorf and articulated by the Criminal Justice Act of 1991, soon gave way to a more emotional and vengeful retributive approach, which also became combined with deterrence and incapacitation. This unfortunate mix systematically undermined the Blair government's ambitious and laudable aspiration to tackle the causes of crime, while feeding the very tyranny of majoritarianism which the enactment of the Human Rights Act aimed to curb. And so, sadly, the expected benefits of the Dorendorf New Labour policy combination have not come to pass. As a result of economic and demographic factors in this country, as in most other advanced economies, crime began to fall in the mid-1990s. But punishment has continued to rise. The failure here to plan adequately for prison expansion, leading to terrible problems of overcrowding, shows, moreover, that this was not a deliberate political strategy. Yet we only have to look across the continent to Germany, a country which has experienced many of the same external pressures, to see an enviable stability in both levels of and humanity in punishment. Could these British dynamics have been avoided if politicians have followed Darendorf's recipe more closely, eschewing incapacitative and deterrent strategies in favour of a strictly proportional desert approach? Both the Conservative government during Douglas Hurd's tenure as Home Secretary and the new Labour government tried something akin to it, but each found themselves catapulted by the imperatives of electoral competition towards ever tougher policies. The political analysis which I've offered suggests some reasons why it was never a feasible strategy. Once the apprentice's broom had been unleashed by the logic of electoral competition, it was impossible to control and will remain so until that logic is undermined by some form of bipartisan agreement. Does the history of new Labour criminal policy show then that the developments just described are an inevitable feature of modernisation? I've argued on the contrary that the institutions which shape government's capacity to sustain moderation in punishment display systematic differences across groups of countries in which those institutions interlock to constitute markedly different varieties of capitalism. 
If we need to understand institutional structure in order to assess opportunities for and barriers to criminal justice reform, it follows that this analysis must be sensitive to country differences. It further follows that we should be very cautious about general claims about late modernity. That political, economic, environmental and technological developments at a transnational level affect the development of national policy to a perhaps more significant degree than ever before can be conceded. But the ways in which different kinds of capitalist state do and can respond to this global environment is varied. And the path to convergence, whether welcome or feared, is far from inevitable. Comparative research gives us many clues about the conditions favourable to penal moderation. If the challenge of resisting mass imprisonment across the world can only be met by effective incorporation of outsiders into the structures of political economy, through education, through work, through political inclusion, it's nonetheless crucial to understand that both the nature of these outsider challenges and the strategic capacities for addressing them vary systematically across kinds of capitalist system. Some sorts of liberal democracy may be more capable, in short, of delivering what normative theorists think of as liberal and democratic criminal justice policies than are others. Policies which respect human rights and the dignity of persons, observe the rule of law, and deliver an effective response to crime without excluding certain sectors of the population. This may sound like a recipe for dystopia for countries like this one. But even if our analysis suggests that the room for manoeuvre may be slight, it's important to grasp precisely where it lies. Neither this country nor the US is going to adopt a PR system or create a generous welfare system with universal coverage any more than they're about to empty their prisons or rediscover penal welfareism. Countries like Germany, whose economies and societies flourish on the basis of a highly coordinated system of group integration, the other face of which is an intractable exclusion of outsiders, are not going to become flexible economies overnight. Along these and many other variables, their available criminal justice strategies will be accordingly enabled and constrained. An adequate analysis of the potential for criminal justice systems' better compliance with democratic ideals must therefore be informed by a grasp of their institutional as well as their macroeconomic and cultural conditions of existence. These conditions of existence include not just the shape of criminal justice policies, not merely the cultural attitudes, but also the broad political and economic structures of a given society. Structure is not determination. So even though I can't unfortunately share Leon Radzinovich's view that penal history amply demonstrates that unjust levels of punishment in democratic societies break down sooner or later. It would be so nice to believe. I can't share that optimistic view, but let me end nonetheless on a somewhat more optimistic note. Even British Home Secretaries, Winston Churchill's probably the most famous, sometimes manage to effect a reduction in the prison population. Recent political anxieties about the costs of criminal justice in some American states may give hope that there too sufficiently determined politicians may before long be in a position to begin to work towards at least a modest reversal of the trend to harshness. The realisation of less criminal injustice and of a criminal justice system matching more closely liberal democratic aspirations is a worthy goal. It is, however, one to which, towards which we can only make progress on the basis of a combined sense of our normative objectives and of the varying institutional environments 
in which we must pursue them. To put it to conclude in terms of the motto, which some of you may have noticed at the entrance to the LSE, rerum cognoscere causas, it translates with a little license as follows. Even if your scholarly motivation is to change the world, it's a good idea to try to understand how it works first. Thank you. Thank you for a brilliant lecture, which will be as important to read in due course as it was to listen to. Uh, it has taken us, at least me, from both to the depths of despair in the early part to at least some glimmer of hope in the later part that a bipartisan or possibly even tripartisan um, depoliticization of aspects, critical aspects of criminal justice business might uh, produce a halt to the arms race, which is what not only, I think, as you've shown, um, accelerates the um, increase in, in incarceration here, but almost certainly in the United States does so at a more grassroots level because, of course, most local judges are elected. And there is no question of mediation uh, of, of their um, policies. Um, they lose their seats on the bench if they don't respond to populist uh, vengefulness. Uh, I do recall um, research, Michael Zander will tell me whether it was for his Royal Commission or um, later Home Office research, which asked a very large sample of people in this country, first of all, um, how, whether they thought judges under-sentenced, over-sentenced, or got it about right. Huge majority said the judges under-sentenced. Everybody knows that. They were then given a simple uh, burglary, in fact, a simple burglary case, and asked what they would give the offender. The great majority said a lot less than the Court of Appeal had, in fact, set in that very case. Uh, the difference between perception and reality for which the media bear almost the entire responsibility in this country, and I suspect in other countries too, is a gap that uh, is going to have to be closed as well if any kind of bipartisan armistice is, I think, going to work. But this has been a stimulating and very important um, contribution to a, a major debate which affects all of us and is going to affect uh, generations to come. Nikki, we thank you very much indeed for it. Uh, Thank you, too, to the London School of Economics for hosting this evening. Thank you for, to Cambridge University Press for their support, and their stall outside um, has some past and recent Hamlin lecture series uh, on, on sale there. Um, this series will be published by CUP in the spring, and publication will, as always now, be accompanied by a seminar to which I hope all of you here will come and that will be your chance to uh, contribute your views. Nikki is going to be spared by me uh, any questions now, although she has said rather rashly that she's willing to be buttonholed over a drink in a moment. The drink is in the senior common room on the fifth floor, and you're all invited to the reception that's to take place there. Thank you for coming. <laughs>